0: Tonight, chapter 11 here in the book of Daniel. And I want to encourage you. Sometimes when people look at the book of Daniel, very specifically these last couple of chapters, there's almost a tendency to believe what the liberal critics would say, and that is they are so accurate that there's no possible way that they were written prophetically. And and I want to give you just one piece of information that you can hang on to. Up until about 1947, you might have been able to make that argument. You you may have been able to say, well, we really don't have a copy that's extant to prior to the dates of the writing of these things. But because of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we do now have a copy of the book of Daniel that was critically poured over uh, that's been dated to 236 BC and is absolutely contains the material that you hold in your laps. And so, as you read these words, what we're going to see tonight, much of it happened more than a hundred years after that date, much less the actual date of Daniel's life. And so, not only did Daniel speak it, but it was written down, and we now have a copy of it that's older than the events that we're going to read tonight, some of them, not all of them, but some of them. And so as we read them, because they're linked together, you must come to the conclusion that either one of two things happened. Either somebody figured out a way to backdate a very solid copy of archaeological evidence by more than 100 years, or God wrote these things before they happened. And so I happen to believe the latter of those things that God did, in fact, author by the Holy Spirit the book of Daniel, that the events took place in Daniel's life, well recorded in human history. And so what we have before us tonight should be a very, very, very encouraging history lesson. And were it not for the fact that we can link it directly to the events that happened during the time frame described here, it would become maybe a boring piece of history. But it's not a boring piece of history because the two empires that we see tonight are the same two empires that tonight sit as the main enemy of the nation Israel. And, of course, this book is written at this stage in these latter chapters, specifically about the destination ahead for the nation Israel. And so as we look at these nations, as we examine this short bit of history tonight, you're going to get a lesson about what God knew before man knew it and how accurately uh, he put that information forth. I want to, again, draw your attention to a couple of things. In the first things, in the first 35 verses of this chapter, there are at least 136 specific pieces of information about the history of the world. Every last one of them came true. 100%. So as you look at this and you realize that we now have some of these events that are described happened at least a hundred years after the oldest copy of Daniel that we currently possess, you get very encouraged about the authority of the word of God. And it is one of those things that we must lay hold of. And so as we study tonight, it's pretty easy to break down this chapter into two very specific categories. The first 35 verses, because you remember back to Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks, amen? The first 35 verses are the first 69 of those sevens. The last verses from verse 36 to 45 cover Daniel's 70th week. And so as we go through this, we first get a history of the world that's excruciatingly accurate. And I will give you the The dates, the names, the places, the kings and the kingdoms that are being described here. These things are so uncontested by historians that they don't even talk about the actual facts. What they were talking about is the date in which these things were written. That's the only thing that's at odds with historians. Because it's so accurate, liberal historians have said, there's no way that anybody could have possibly written this down except after the fact. That flew out the window in 1947. So as we study tonight, the four reasons that I think this chapter is important. One, it authenticates God's word as God's word. Not the writings of man, not just holy men who had good ideas, but literally the word of the true and the living God. It does that. The second thing, it, it demonstrates that there is exactly one God who dwells in heaven. Because this information couldn't come from multiple sources. It isn't like, you know, Satan and Jesus got together and, you know, well, your story's better than mine, which is common Mormon theology, by the way. Satan's plan was a little bit, you know, Jesus was a little bit better than Satan, So we'll go with Jesus's plan. There's one source of this information. So to me, when I look at it, this is another proof that there is a God in heaven and he does govern the affairs of men. Because if he could not do that, then of these first 35 verses and the 136 different pieces of information, surely one of them would have been wrong. If it was competition between two gods, if it were written by the hand of man, Surely there would have been something in here that we could have picked apart. But we can't. Fortunately, the focal point of this, remember whose vision this is. It is the vision, it is the word of the man who we have already identified as none other than an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ himself. So this is the living word speaking the word. And so it gives us a picture that Jesus, in fact, is God and he is Messiah. Because he says of himself, by the time we get the New Testament, he gives himself this very title. He said, the Son of Man. That's who I am. He identifies with this particular book. He identifies himself with the book of Daniel. So Jesus himself said, I authored the book of Daniel. So it validates the Messiah. And the final thing that I think we'll see tonight is it strengthens us as God's people. You see, when I can look at this book, when I can study God's word, and I can sit there and debate whoever wants to talk about Near Eastern history, and they want to cover the great Greek kings, they, they want to look at the rulers of that period of time, and, and we go through this passage of Scripture... And I said, well, you know, it pretty much describes the time of the Ptolemites and it describes the time of the Seleucids uh, pretty much accurately. Matter of fact, so much so that when I look at these lists of kings and I look at what they did, it can be none other than the actual kings that existed that we have recorded in the annals of Greek history. The Greeks were wonderful at writing down their own history, as were the Romans. And so we begin to have this incredible absolute confidence that our bibles are true and i pray that happens with you tonight and so as we begin we'll pick up in verse one uh, it's one reason to tell about something after the fact it's another reason to tell about something before it happens amen, amen. a lot of people can be kind of pseudo prophets because they'll you ever noticed how in like sports oh yeah well i saw that one coming You know, oh, yeah, of course, you know, I I knew so-and-so was going to do that. Well, it's because you already know what they're actually doing. You've seen them. In this case, it's hundreds of years before the events happen for the most part. And if you go back to the actual date of the writing of the book, this is 200 to 350 years before these events would happen. And so unbelievably accurate. As Peter would declare in Second Peter chapter 1, there in the 19th through the 20 verse, 21st verses, this really is a light shining in a dark place. This is one of those passages of Scripture. It's just like, okay, well, this is very different than than what people say about God's Word. It's interesting how people look at the Bible, isn't it? Some people will say, well, the Bible is a religious book. That's one of the most common answers. When you ask people about... The Bible. They will say it's a religious book. Some people will say that it is a Christian book. They'll assign it basically to Christianity. Some people will say that it is a history book. But very few people actually believe that it is the authoritative word of God. That's what it is. And that's what this helps us lay hold of. So verse 1, because these details are so accurate, You're going to need to follow with me, and you can go search these things for yourself. What I've done is condensed down what could be pretty much a lifetime of Greek history if you wanted to go there. Uh, But I'm going to challenge you. Don't take me for what I say. Go on the Internet. Google these kings. Find out when they live. Look at who they are. Ask yourself the simple question, does this fit? And I believe that you will come away with it going, oh, my goodness, this is unbelievable. And so I'm going to give you the short version tonight. You can go look up the long version for yourself as we begin in verse 1 here in Daniel chapter 11. So also, notice the word also, circle it, because it's now being stuck with what's previously been said in chapter 10. So this is still the Lord. Notice in the middle of the first verse, I, even I, who's been writing in chapter 10, it's none other than the Lord. It's his word. It's his vision. He's spoken these things. So it says, also, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Would you underline that? Because what it says is, all along, even though Darius uh, the Mede, the Persian king who comes into existence, is actually an enemy of, in large degree, to the nation Israel. He's come in to conquer Babylon. It appears very clear here that God has it fully in view that Jesus himself even strengthened and confirmed his kingdom, his timing, and his ability to conquer uh, even the Babylonian empire. And so when it looks like things are going sideways, like we have in our country right now, it's like, where are we going next? How can we have possibly gotten here? When we look at some of the things that are transpiring in our nation, we wonder, has God fallen off the throne? Maybe you don't, but I do. There are times when I'm like, Lord, what are you allowing here? Why is this happening? Notice what's being said. I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him, and now I will tell you the truth. So Jesus himself, in a Christophany, Appearing to the prophet Daniel says that I was in charge of Darius coming and making sure that the Babylonian Empire ended and the Persian Empire progressed to the place that it was. I actually strengthened them to do my bidding. They were in my hands all along, even though they actually did evil. God had it under control. And now he's going to lay out the truth. Behold, Three more kings will arise in Persia. Very, very, very specific things. If there are five kings, we're in trouble. If there's two kings, we're in trouble. There must be three more kings that arise in Persia, and then a fourth to be far richer than them all. And by his strength and through his riches, he shall stir up against all the realm of Greece. Now this has not happened yet. This is being prophetically spoken There is one king, he's on the scene, there are going to be these four more who will come along, and they will actually engage Greece in military combat. And so he says, and then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion, and do according to his will. And so there will come out of that kingdom, which will be the last of these kings, a single ruler who will rise up and in essence in the ancient world be uncontested need to lock some of these things into your head because it becomes very clear who's being talked about once you get all these things put together and it says and when he's arisen his kingdom shall be broken up and divided to the four winds but not among his posterity. So his kingdom, whoever this guy is, his kingdom's gonna be broken up, but there won't be a single bit of his progeny involved in the process of taking over his kingdom. That also is very important, because typically almost every king in the ancient world passed his kingdom on to guess who? His kids. So now we have a situation where there has to be a Greek ruler, because that's the kingdom who comes out on top after the first four kings. There must be a Greek ruler who evidently has no progeny. And, of course, we're going to find out who that is in just a moment. Not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he has ruled. In other words, he's going to start a kingdom, that will become huge, largely uncontested, and then it's going to get divided up, and it actually won't ever be what he once made it. He goes on. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. And so Jesus, the living word in these few verses, four verses to be exact, gives part of this vision uh, interestingly, the Lord reveals himself as, as he, he supports and protects Darius the Mede. At this point in time, he's writing in 539 B.C. And so we begin in the timing of Daniel's prophecy to look for these events to unfold themselves. It's a rapid, it's a smooth transfer of power that goes from Babylon to Persia. And it's not just Cyrus's great skill as a leader. It's not just this world power that comes in. It is literally the Lord willing to do as He purposes to do. And with that revelation, we're reminded that in fact the Lord does, even when bad things happen, still have the world under control. Even when He allows war. Even when He allows death. Even when He allows things that we do not understand and do not want. God is actually still fully in control. It is one of two things, either his divine will, which is his perfect will, or his permissive will, that which he allows to happen so that he might accomplish an end. God is still on the throne. That's verse 1. Verse 2, so this vision that occurs during the reign of Cyrus the Great, There would be three more kings. They're very easy to identify because of the way the Persians, the Medes, and even the Babylonians, followed by the Greeks, kept historical record. Uh, they are Shambhesus, who is the the I, they're pseudo Amaris and darius Hippostasis. Those three kings are uncontested in human history. You can simply go Google their names, find out when they lived, and those three kings are, are exactly um, these three that would follow, and they follow exactly in that order, and they are Persian kings. And then finally, there's another king that comes along. Notice he's separated out as a fourth. Guess what? You have a book in your Bible that describes some of his doings, and that is the book of Esther, and his name is Artaxerxes, uh, or, or Ahasuerus as he's known in the Old Testament in Hebrew. And so King Xerxes has, notice what it says, he'll have fabulous wealth. That's exactly what we know from the book of Esther. Unbelievably wealthy. Uh, he employs a great banquet as a pretext to stir up the guests against, guess who, Greece. So who's coming next? It's Greece. So we begin to see these historical things uh, begin to come into view. Xerxes' expedition against Greece uh, in 580 B.C. failed absolutely miserably. He, he went out, you, some of you may have seen the movie, The 300. Uh, it is a story of this period of time when the Medes and the Persians were coming against the Greeks. And the Greeks are like, no way, you're not taking Greece. doesn't happen. It's actually this story. This is it. This is the one. It happens at Thermopylae. And the battle of Thermopylae is undertaken. And here you have these Greeks who come against a vastly superior Persian army, and they defeat them. That is exactly what your Bible says would happen. And so by the time you get back to the book of Esther and that story of Esther and Ruth, uh, you, you have all of these, these players in view. Mordecai comes in. He says, you know, what? Ah, well, you know, my niece, you know, I don't know about this whole genocide of the Jewish thing, but we're going to do that anyway. Guess what? It doesn't happen. And in fact, it's turned back on his own head. So the Jews survive. The Persians fade into history and the Greeks, who were a much less mighty force, become the power in the world. Your Bible says that's what will happen. And so by the time you get to verses 3 and 4, uh, this, this is touching that period of time that we reviewed when we were in chapter 8. This is the ram, this is the goat, and the mighty king who does what he pleases, we've already studied. You know his name. It's Alexander the Great. He is uncontested in the ancient world. By the time he dies at either 32 or 33 years old, there's a little debate of which one it is, in that short reign that he has, he has exactly... Uh, a number uh, in his army that would be a a recipe for defeat. If I told you, well, let's take 35,000 men and go against a vastly superior uh, force of of the Persian Empire that would number someplace in the two hundred and fifty to 300,000 men, you'd go, well, that's kind of stupid. That's 10 to 1. And yet that is exactly what Alexander the Great does. And guess what he does? He wins. That's what your Bible says would happen. 336 BC Alexander came to the throne of Greece and Macedonia he rules over that and in 13 years he conquered the entire Persian Empire with a force that was 10 times smaller than the Persian Empire that's the story of Alexander the Great he literally did what he pleased wherever he went he was victorious. It, history is a little bit divided on it, but the history of Alexander the Great is that he was never defeated in battle, ever, even though he, he mounted unbelievable uh, campaigns. And so what happened was, his, because he died at such a young age, he didn't have any kids. Notice what it says. There's not going to be any of his descendants involved in the descendancy of the throne. And so who comes along but those who ruled the geographic regions. What does your Bible say? The four winds. Those are geographic regions. They are directions from which the wind comes. North, south, east, and west. And so when you look at those things, Egypt being to the south. Ptolemy takes that part. To the north, you have antagonists. Who would, that would be Syria. And so Syria is one. Ptolemy is as, as another. Uh, Lysmatius is in Thrace, which is Bithynia, which is basically modern-day Turkey, and the area around Greece itself. And then Cassander is more up into Europe and Macedonia. So these four men come alongside, and the Greek Empire is actually portioned out, divided up, and split off. If you check your history books, you go online, Google any of these guys, you're going to find out that they lived exactly in the time period that's being described here. And they did exactly what your Bible says. They took a portion of the four winds. They oversaw those those places on earth. And then it begins to focus in a little bit. Notice the two final empires, because the Greek Empire now basically fades into history. Modern scholarship, archaeology dates these things to exactly within these time frames. But what happens is, now pick up in verse 5, so also, so he goes on, now having these things come to pass, also the king of the south shall become strong. The king of the south is none other than the king of Egypt at that time. And so that's Ptolemy, one of the first. And, and much like the Herods were Herod 1, Herod 2, Herod Antipas, all of those, so were the Ptolemites. They were rulers of Egypt and up in the north, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. At the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north and make an agreement. That is very specific prophetic information. That means that there has to be a king who exists in the south, which would be the Ptolemites, and one who would exist in the north, which would be the Seleucids, and that they would have to have a daughter from the south go to the king of the north and be joined together in some way. And so we'll get there in just a moment. But she shall not retain power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand. But she shall be given up with those who brought her, and with him who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. This is unbelievably specific. So there has to be a ruler of Egypt, there has to be a ruler of Syria, and this is super easy to to divide up when you get down to it. So at this point, we narrow down to just two parts of Alexander's empire. The Egyptian portion, which is ruled under the Ptolemites, the Syrian portion, which is ruled under the Seleucid Greeks, and so we begin to see this kind of all condensed down. Uh, and so what I want to draw your attention to is that is and remains to this day the battleground which lies between them is, guess who? The Jewish people. And so these two nations, though at times have been absolutely uh, in cahoots one with another, they've been allies they're actually not friends. They really don't like each other, but for one cause. And that is to come against the Jewish people in the nation Israel. And so it began, in, in essence, when we look at it, some 2,400 years ago. That's how long that battle's been going on. And so Ptolemy, the Seleucid princes, I could give you a list of them. I'm not going to do that tonight. But if you just... Google the name Ptolemy, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, and you'll see a list of six of them. There were six of those rulers in Egypt. If you Google the Seleucids, that is the Greek empire that occupies Syria to this day. Uh, Seleucus Nictator is the first one. It goes down through a very long period of the Seleucid rulers. Here's what happens with this group. Also, a king of the south shall become strong as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall have great dominion. The first king of the, of the south was Ptolemy Legus. He was called Soter. He ruled Egypt from 323 uh, to 280 B.C. Again, extremely well documented. His general, Seclusius Nectator, was the next guy to come on the scene. He was a general. He was a prince in this guy's army. Stronger than Soder. actually defeated uh, the northern kingdom uh, of antagonists uh, in a major battle in Gaza. Guess where Gaza is today? Uh, It's actually in Israel. You can call it Palestine if you want. As far as God's concerned, it's the land he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these guys have been fighting each other over the land that is Israel since 23, 2400 years ago. That's the picture that's painted. And so Seleucius Nectator uh, goes on and builds the Seleucid Empire, which is Syria in the north. Uh, and the Ptolemites retain their power in the south. And there are exactly in each group, there are six kings in each one. And they basically hate each other's guts. But they come together to fight over who's going to rule over the Jewish people that are left in what we call now the land of Palestine. And at the end of some years, verse 6 says, they shall join forces. For the daughter of the king of the south, now hear this, the daughter of the king of the south is obviously the king of the south, so it's one of the Ptolemites. So we look to history to find out who this is. Um, You all know her, by the way. Uh, You've probably watched a few movies with her in it. Uh, She's none other than Cleopatra. And so she is one of the daughters of the Ptolemites. And so for some years they join forces, the daughter of the king of the south, to go to the king of the north to make an agreement to retain power of the authority. It's not his, not hers. And so Berenice comes along, and and so Ptolemy Philadelphus, which is the king of the south, begins to uh, marry marry into the Syrian power line. And, And before you know it, they're going back and forth, and ultimately it ends up, uh, with these battles that go on for almost 400 years. And so when you get to verses 7 and 8, it says, "...a branch from her roots..." shall rise up and and be in his place, who shall come with an army and enter into the fortress of the north. So it's getting very specific. They're going back and forth attacking each other. Literally, a branch out of the southern kingdom will attack the northern kingdom. They'll enter into the city. This happened when Ptolemy Philadelphus attacks the city of Damascus to avenge his sister's murder. And and this political intrigue is extremely well documented in, in human history. And so when we look at these things... We're not guessing as to whether they were going to happen or not. We're actually seeing the results of what God said at least 100 years beforehand, probably 400 years, three to 400 years ahead of the time, actually unveiling themselves in human history. And so you can go to your local library, you can Google it, you can look over it. And by the time uh, Seleucius Callinicus comes along, he's the king of the north between 246 and 226 B.C., uh, the, the great historian Jerome records that that Ptolemy, who was the third, took Egypt back almost 400 talents of silver, 4,000 4, talents of gold, and a costly idol. It says here, that the princes and their precious articles of silver and gold shall continue for more years than the king of the north. And so it tells us exactly what he did. And so when we look at it, we're going, man, how in the world could anybody possibly know those things? So verse 9, and says, Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but not return to his own land. However, his sons shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and then one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and then he'll set up to return his fortress and to stir up strife. And so now we have, again, the Seleucids, the kings of the north. This one is Callinicus. Uh, He invades Egypt in 240 BC. He's unsuccessful. He returns home. His fleet actually perished in a storm. Very cool thing happened in the Mediterranean Sea. They found the remains of the fleet of Seleucus Callinicus so much so that he was such a brazen hoarder of money, he minted his own coins with his own face and with his own name on them. We now have thousands of them. And so we find a shipwrecked battle group on the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, thanks to modern oceanographic technology. And so you can go there and you can actually look at the coins of this dude who went down to Egypt, got whooped on and went to return north and ended up perishing in a storm unbelievable history that just kind of unfolds it doesn't give us all the details but it makes it so it's impossible to be confused with anybody else because they're talking about their direct relations one with another and his two sons Seleucus Caranicus and Antiochus the Great who's Antiochus the Second stir themselves up into war and so they come together and they begin to conquer most of Asia Minor Antiochus uh, moves throughout Egypt, he captures the Egyptian fortress at Gaza, for which is why the Syrians and the Egyptians actually still hate each other. And so these guys are still fighting over the fact, well, your grandfather's mother's uncle's cousin's aunt's great-grandfather killed my grandfather's great-uncle's aunt's mother's uncle's cousin's sister. And so that uh, when you look at the Middle East, people are going, well, there's got to be a solution to it. You know, why can't there be peace in the Middle East? Because scripture says there won't be any peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace comes and sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives. It is not going to happen. These guys are going to fight with each other and hate each other and hate on each other and try and kill each other and take over each other's kingdoms and each other's lands because it has been going on for two thousand four hundred and about eighty years. They don't like each other. They never have. And God says they're going to fight against each other, and it's interesting because He doesn't say at the end of this that these things will end. He simply says, "And this is how it is." And so, by the time Ptolemy Philopator comes on the scene, uh, he offers absolutely no, no, not even a defense. He just simply gives up. He says it's not worth it. There's been five generations, I'm the sixth one, and I'm not going to go to war against these guys, because every time we do, everybody dies. And so he just basically gives up to Antiochus the Great. And at that time, Antiochus the Great, in essence, has now also taken over parts of modern-day Israel and the transjordinary of that world, which is Jordan, parts of Syria, Lebanon. Uh, And so we get to verse 11. And it says, and the king of the south shall be moved with rage. And so now we're back to Egypt again. So the king of the south moved with rage uh, to go out and fight with him, with the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. So there's going to be a battle that's going to be stirred up, and the tide is going to be turned very quickly. Uh, When he is taken away from the multitude, his heart will not be lifted up. He'll be cast down uh, by the tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. And so this Ptolemy comes along, he raises a large army, it's recorded in history, about 73,000 soldiers, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants, of all things to have down uh, in the south in Egypt. I don't know how elements, elephants did down there very well, but uh, they had elephants. And so he overcomes Antiochus the Great with a superior force in the battle at Raphia uh, in 217 BC. He didn't press his victory; basically, just gives up, exactly as this says. Brings us to verse 13: For the king of the north will return and muster a greater multitude than the former. So you can see how these guys have just been going back and forth, battling each other, just like okay, one one time one guy wins, the next guy comes back and wins. And certainly it shall come at the end of some years with a great army and much equipment, and in those times many shall rise up against the king of the south, and also violent men of your own people shall exalt themselves in the fulfillment of the vision, but they will fail. And so now we make it to Antiochus the Great. So Antiochus the Great in the northern kingdom comes, and after this great defeat at Raphia, he comes along a second time against Egypt. Ptolemy and and his wife die that year. He passes it on to his son. His son at this time is five years old. And again, this is why it was so interesting that we find out that none of, in essence, this great warrior that we know as Alexander the Great would pass it along because they would do that if there were two, three. It didn't matter. They would be a king for a long period of time before they ever began to rule. And through house rule, they would set around them some counselors, and those counselors would rule de facto the kingdom. And that's why we know that this was Alexander the Great, because he had no progeny. None. Zero. Zip. Wasn't passed along. And so uh, Ptolemy Epiphanes comes of, comes of age at four or five. He now is actually announced uh, as, as, the, as the king of the south, the king of Egypt. Uh, They they begin to rebel. Basically, now Antiochus the Great, who's formed a league with Philip of Macedonia. So you have this great northern army that's now gigantic. It's not just the Grecian kingdom. It's the Macedonian kingdom, which is adjacent to it, which would have included, if we looked at it on our modern map, Lebanon, Syria, uh, most of Turkey, Jordan, this whole gigantic northern area. Uh, is going to come against the, the smaller, much smaller uh, area that we know as Egypt. And so the Jews uh, ally themselves with Antiochus, uh, feeling, hey, here's a superior force. They're going to sweep down from the north. They're going to wipe out. Uh, and yet the Jews, through their alliance, uh, aid Israel, but instead their nation is brought into serious grasp. And all of a sudden now they're under the pressure of the, of the Syrians, subjected to the horrors of none other than Antiochus Epiphanes, the guy that we've already seen. And so the final Antiochus, who is Antiochus Epiphanes, who's the ruler of the Seleucids, which is the remainder of the Greek Empire in essence, uh, he tortures God's prophets, you know, the prophets had already warned, don't make an allegiance with this guy, uh, give it up, just don't do it. Uh, We find ourselves in verse 15. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mound and take the fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not withstand him. And even his choice troops have no strength to resist. And he who comes against him shall do according to his own will. And no one shall stand against him for he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. And so now the Egyptian general, Scopus, comes on a counteroffensive against Antiochus the Great. He's defeated when Antiochus captures none other than the city of Sidon. Wonderful thing about the city of Sidon. It's one of the most well-excavated archaeological sites on the face of the earth. This siege mound mentioned in your Bible has been extensively excavated. You can go there today and see it. And so when you look at these pieces of history, it becomes very clear that that these things, even if somebody had knowledge of them, to gather them that with this kind of accuracy is almost unfathomable. Uh, much like the prophecies of the coming Messiah and Dr. Peter Stoner's work to kind of ferret all that out in a numerical sense, this chapter's been taken apart by all kinds of historians and it is literally in the same vein mathematically impossible for all of these things to be linked together and for us to have a copy of it that precedes any of the events. If there were any of the events that occurred after the fact, it automatically makes it mathematically impossible. And so the fact that we have a copy that's older than some of these events, like these events that we're looking at now, can't happen. It just simply had to come from someplace else. And then of course, we know it came from the Lord. And so Antiochus turns his attention to what is modern-day Palestine. That's if you want to know where it got its name, this is where it got its name. It's called beautiful land. That's actually what Palestine means. If you look at Palestine, you would not think beautiful about it. The reason it's beautiful is guess why? It was occupied by the Jewish people. And because it was God's land, it was beautiful land, and everybody wanted the land that the Jews had. They didn't even know why they wanted it. It's because God's word said that there would be constant strife between the seed of Ishmael and, and the seed of those that would come that would be in the Lord. And so uh, craziness how exacting this is. Verse 17, it says, for he shall set his face to enter with strength. Into his whole kingdom, and his upright one shall come with him, and thus he shall do, and shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him or be before him. And so, at this time, by the time the Greeks kind of run their course, Rome is starting to come into view, and so it begins to exert its power. Uh, there shall also notice this that there will be upright ones who come with him. It was interesting that the Roman Empire, when it first, first came into view, was considered a benefit to most of the known world. Wherever it went, it brought a measure of peace. It brought the Pax Romana, which is the Roman peace. It brought the Roman roads. It brought w- Roman architecture and agriculture and all of these things, aquaculture. They invented the aqueduct system, all of those kinds of things the first paved roads, they invented concrete. The Romans were basically good. And so when you look at the Romans, when they began to come on the scene, now you're kind of having the fading of the Greek empire. And so... Ah uh, you you begin to see these political alliances, and so uh, Rome begins to exert its power in the Eastern Mediterranean. This exertion of power prompts an alliance between Antiochus and Ptolemy Epiphanes. Uh, they decide that they're going to now bring their kids into it because if we get our kids intermarried, then it's all going to work out because nobody wants to go against somebody who's you know part of the family. It didn't work. and so Cleopatra. Excuse me, I spoke presumptuously a few moments ago, but Cleopatra now comes on the scene and she's, she's in essence, uh, the, the wedge that's, that's driven between these two great nations with Rome hovering over ready to take on, uh, the rest of the world. And so, uh, Cleopatra and Ptolemy are married. Uh, interestingly enough, this particularly, particular Ptolemy, uh, because this happened in 193 BC would have been somewhere around nine or ten years old. And so, again, they're just trying to dump these kingdoms off and keep them going. And so the next one is announced as the new king. And so to make a political allegiance, you have a 10-year-old marrying a 13-year-old. And so Cleopatra was identified as uh, as Ishbaeth. Ishbaeth means actually daughter of women, which is exactly what she's called here. That was her name in Hebrew. And so she was known as this specific person. Uh, Antiochus' great scheme to control Egypt through his daughter backfires. Uh, Cleopatra, in essence, loved her husband more than she loved her father. And so when Antiochus engaged the Romans, uh, guess what she did? She switched sides. It's exactly what your Bible says. You can go get a few movies and watch the basic story. History told in advance. And so we come to verse 18. And after this, he shall, re- he shall turn his face towards the coastland. So now gazing towards the edge of, of the Mediterranean and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring up the reproach against them to an end. And with the reproach removed, he shall turn his back on him. And then he shall turn his face towards the fortress of his lo- own land. But he shall stumble and fall and not be found. And so now Antiochus the Great turns his attention towards the Mediterranean, the coastland, the islands that he can see from the coast, which would have been, uh, in essence, the islands that would be controlled one day by Rome. Uh, The Roman Empire, he brings the conflict uh, to them. They bring it right back to him. Uh, He invades the Aegean Sea and the Aegean Islands, the Greek islands, portions of Asia Minor, Thrace, uh, while Rome is still seeking to kind of spread out and begin to take control over that region of the world. Uh, there's this battle that goes on. He invades several of those islands. Antiochus begins to boast about it, seeing what the Romans could actually do. Then comes on the scene a great Roman general, uh, General Lucius Cornelius Scupio, who, who comes and deals with him and basically pushes Antiochus back uh, into modern-day Syria. After that time, he basically says, we're done. We abandon those conquests. And so you get a short course in, in uh, Near Eastern history. Uh, If you look at this, it's interesting because uh, in 188 B.C., Antiochus is forced, he's compelled to sign the Treaty of Apima. Uh, He signs that treaty. It basically surrenders everything that is to the uh, the north of the Tarsus Mountains. The Tarsus Mountains are in Turkey. Uh, They are the headwaters of the Tigris and the Euphrates River. So now you have the modern world, in essence, condensed and defined as we see it today. When you look at those areas of the world that have been described, Rome controlling what we now know is mostly Italy. uh, The remainder of the Seleucid Empire is controlling Greece and Macedonia, uh, also parts of Turkey. And when you look at their history, that is exactly what you see. You see a Grecian influence in Turkey. You see a Grecian influence in Macedonia. You see a Roman influence along the Baltic coast. You can find Roman fortifications in there, of course, in Italy itself. Sicily, and those islands are directly off of Italy. And so the way your Bible leaves this is exactly the way the world was left. And when you go look at your map today, you find these peoples in exactly these locations. And so Antiochus, the great... Uh, trying to, to plunder some of the areas outside of his signed-off control, uh, ends up uh, losing his life over that. He's actually killed, uh, trying to raid the temple of, of Belus at Emmaus, which is over the border of the lands that he surrendered in the Treaty of Apima. And so it says in verse 20, And there shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom. But within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. So the final Seleucid, Seleucid uh, Pilifator, who comes along, he, it's 187 B.C. By the time this happened, he's the eldest son of Antiochus the Great. Uh, his father had the unpleasant task of being the raiser of taxes. Uh, the Seleucids were kind of famous for that. They would almost rival the Romans in the amount of taxes they extorted from their people. Uh, The annual tribute of the Romans was supposed to be a thousand talents. He dispatches his foster brother to go take care of those things. Uh, And by then, Herodotus uh, seizes the temple funds and the treasury at Jerusalem. And shortly after that, he's dead. World history in advance. It's crazy stuff. Like I said, you could read hundreds, literally hundreds of books on this period of time. And I simply try to condense it down for you so you can you can go check out what you want to check out. Go read what you want to read. Read the history of the Ptolemites. Read the history of the Seleucids. Read the history of, of Alexander the Great. Read the great story of the Battle of Thermopylae. Read some of these stories and you go, man, God told us that was going to happen before it ever happened. And we just sit around marveling at it, going, thank you, Lord, that your word is true. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as you authored these words and gave them to us in our Bibles, that that we look at them and they just give us such great trust in the authority of your word. and They do give us a picture of you, Jesus, always on the throne, never off the throne, always God, never less than God, controlling the events of human history, making kings and kingdoms rise and fall. And so, Lord, we pray that you just give us confidence as we read the gospel message. Lord, as we read that for you are not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance, that that's a truth. When we read that what must a man do to be born again, uh, that that the answer to that is uh, that, that we would become as a little child. Lord, that we would... Uh, enter into that relationship with you by grace. These truths that are held in the word that's in our hands. God, we would believe and rest in, trust in, and act on. We thank you for your goodness. We pray that you would bless us. Strengthen us, we pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.